right, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Mission Driven Made podcast. I want to welcome Lauren Hardy to the show, and thank you for uh, being on the show, Lauren. Thanks for having me, Jacob. What's up, everybody? Yeah, so I, I've been uh, really excited to, to reach out to you and have you on the show. I first heard you on Greg Helbeck's podcast. I know you're friends with him, or you guys have at least uh, worked together uh, a little bit. So before we get into the real estate stuff, I remember you had a pretty inspiring story leading up until that point. So can you kind of talk about what life was like before real estate? Well, I, so I live in Orange County, California and life before real estate, at least life before investment real estate, me being an entrepreneur, um, I was working a full-time corporate job and it was in corporate real estate. Um, and I had a, my daughter Reese, she was only one years old at the time. And I was pregnant with Presley. Um, now they are actually seven and 10. So <laughs> to give you, this was a long time ago. Um, and yeah, I was, you know, working corporate life, raising kids. And, you know, I realized that it was very hard to be a mom with a corporate job. Uh, their dad at the, I was married at the time and their dad had a corporate job as well. It was really hard to juggle the balance, you know, between being a parent and having a career, but I didn't want to give up my career. So I went on a mission to find something that I could do from home. So I had control over my time and it just so happened that my brother started flipping houses a year before I did. And he talked to me about his house flipping experience. And he gave me the idea that, Hey, you know, this is something that you could do. You could potentially work from home with, you know, the kids hanging around and, you know, why don't you give it a shot? And I really, at that moment, I was so desperate to just get out of that corporate hustle. So I did. And yeah, fast forward almost 10 years, here I am. And if we can zoom in a little bit to kind of that transitional period, because I'm sure you've heard a million times when people are trying to go from working a corporate job to more of an entrepreneurship type of job or role, they struggle thinking they don't have enough time. And obviously you dealt with that transition period where you're probably kind of doing both. Uh, so can you kind of talk about how that was? And if it was, I mean, it sounds like it would have been pretty challenging to say the least. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. I, I remember I just put no excuses. Like I had a no excuses mentality and I tell people that you have to do that exact thing. You have to say, I'm going to make it work no matter what. And if that means I have to wake up at four in the morning, then you're going to have to wake up at four in the morning and work before the kids wake up. Um, if that's working till 11, 12 o'clock at night, you know, after you put the kids to bed, then that's what you're doing. Um, so I very much had to put that no excuses mentality. I remember when I got pregnant with Presley, I was very scared that I was going to have the same pregnancy experience as I did with Reese. Um, I did have, I got really sick. I had a very rough pregnancy and I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way I'm going to be able to work this corporate job full time take care of my one and a half year old and be pregnant and be sick. Like if I'm sick, I, this will ruin the whole thing. And I swear, I think because I didn't allow myself to get sick with that pregnancy, I had zero symptoms of pregnancy, my entire pregnancy with Presley. Like I, I wow. willed it, like I willed <laughs> it that I was refused to feel pregnant. I was like, I'm not feeling pregnant. Like I, 
because I have to make this business work. And my whole plan was that I would take my maternity leave and I would never go back to that corporate job after Presley was born. Did it work out that way? It did. It did. Awesome. Yes. I don't know how you guys do it. My wife with both of our daughters, she was sick, especially with our first one, the entire pregnancy. I'm talking, uh, this is when she was working too. She would go into the bathroom at work and throw up maybe five, six times a day, at least while Ooh. she was working. So I don't know how you guys do it. Yeah, that's rough. I didn't have it that bad, but I definitely felt pretty terrible. <laughs> so yeah, you know, we do it because we have to, Yeah, you have no other choice. So and then, so you went on leave and then that was it. Then you were, was it full-time, you know, full-blown real estate investing from there? Yes. Um, so my goal was that I would have an entire year's salary saved up before I left. So that way I knew that if it didn't work out, I at least have a year to figure it out. So I hit that goal right when I went into maternity leave. So I knew that I was going to be able to make that call to the boss and say, I'm not coming back. And I remember that was such a big day. I mean, I... I really recommend visualization. Like I visualize that day of calling and saying, I'm never coming back and that freedom. Like it, um, I imagine like shackles being like removed <laughs> from my arms um, because I just looked at corporate life. Like it was jail. I honestly felt like corporate life felt like jail to me. Like every Sunday I'd get the Sunday scaries and every Monday it was like, oh, okay. Like my time is now, I am owned by someone else. Like my time is owned from eight to five. I have to be here. It doesn't matter. I have to ask to be sick. I have to ask if my kids are sick, you know? And I just, I hated that. I love controlling my life. So hundred percent. I remember when, when I quit my corporate job, one of the, like the, the, the last things that got me personally was I had to go pick up my daughter from school and I went over a little bit of my, you know, hour long lunch break. And that turned out to be a little bit of an issue. And then I, I realized I don't want to have to ask someone to go pick up my daughter from school. Like that was kind of one of the last straws for me. So hundred percent agree with you. Absolutely. And do you remember your first deal? And if so, can you kind of take us through how that went? I heard it can be, you know, a good couple months before people get their first deal, especially with a flip. Yeah. So it actually took me four months to get that deal. So I was marketing and making offers to seller after seller and just nobody was saying yes to me. I was, I got close on a couple of them, but no yeses. And I remember this is, it's the funniest thing because the seller that I sold me this house, my first deal, somehow I missed him. I don't know how, but we missed each other. And he sent me a letter, snail mail, saying, if you'd like to buy my house, I'm still interested. This is what I'd like for it. You know, give me a call. And I was like, checked my PO box, like, you know, a week later or something going, Oh my gosh, I'm so thankful. I checked my PO box today and I called him. And at the time I thought we were still very off on price. Now I was just uneducated at the time. That was actually a good price, but I actually thought it was too high. So I put him on a follow-up. Like I was like, I'll follow up with him and try to beat him down on price even more. Well, then I was working with my brother at the time. We had the deal that we were going to do our first, deal, my first deal together. So I showed him a stack of my leads. I said, these are all the offers I made. These are all the seller's lowest prices. Like, is there a deal in here? 
And he picks, goes through him. He picks this one up. He's like, what is this one? He's like, he'd still take that price. I was like, well, I don't know. He, he did as of a week ago. He's like, call him tomorrow and say yes. <laughs> like, okay. So, I mean, the first deal almost slipped away from me like several times. And yeah, we locked that thing up. It was a condo in Laguna Niguel. And right when I always make this joke that I, right when we bought that house was the last day of the recession because we bought it and real estate values increased 10% uh, while I held that property and while we were fixing it up. It was only like two or three months, real estate values went up. So I had 10% of just built in equity in there. Um, so we fixed it up, we sold it and we split like $65,000 between us. Um, so it was a great, it was such a slam dunk first deal. Um, I, I definitely had beginner's luck, I think on that one. Um, and I ended up getting another condo exactly like that shortly after. So my first year was really, really great. Um, I really left my first year thinking I was some sort of prodigy to house flipping, um, <laughs> But it was my second year where reality, you know, slapped me in the face. And I realized that <laughs> this is actually really tough. And it's been, you know, lots of ups and downs since then. So you got good years and you have some bad years too. That's on, that's being an entrepreneur. And I, I assume in the Orange County area, it's probably pretty competitive for real estate investing, right? Yes, it's very, very competitive. I would argue this is probably one of the most competitive um counties in the country. Definitely. And I know that because I mean, I, I also co I have a coaching program where I coach investing out of state virtually. So I have students from all over the country. So yeah, it's crazy here. And don't quote me on this number, but I heard somewhere about Southern California in particular around Orange County, and then also in the Bay Area that sometimes it's cost in 10 to 20 grand in like marketing costs to be able to get, you know, an actual lead that you can follow through with and eventually, you know, close the deal. Is that somewhat accurate? It's actually very accurate. I would start at 10,000. Absolutely. I haven't actually been doing this business in California because of that reason. When my marketing per deal hit 10 grand, I went out of state. Yeah, that was actually going to be uh, my next question. Since uh, I know you're known for wholesale or wholesaling real estate and doing so virtually, can you kind of tell us what wholesaling is and then how it works virtually. So house flipping is think HGTV, you're buying a fixer upper, you're fixing it up, you're making it look really pretty. And then you're putting it back on the market and you're making, you know, a big prop, you know, profit of let, let's say that first example, $60,000, right? So what wholesaling is, is you're finding that deal but instead of fixing it up, you're going to sell that deal to another investor who's going to be the one that fixes it up. Um, or that investor might be a landlord. It might be somebody that wants a rental in the area. So wholesaling takes out that risk factor of fixing it up and, you know, putting it back on the market and actually losing money. Um, instead, you're taking this property. And as soon as you get it under contract, you're talking to your investor buddies, seeing who's interested in it and selling it as quickly as possible, eliminating a lot of risk. Um, the reason I chose to focus on wholesaling was because I went virtual. So I went outside of my backyard I started flipping houses outside of my backyard, out of state. And what I realized is that construction element 
it was very challenging to manage when you're not there. I was getting taken advantage of by contractors just left and right. I was losing money on these deals. And I realized that this wholesaling strategy is much easier to manage virtually. So I just put my focus on wholesaling and building the biggest investor network I could find and trying to get as many properties we can get under contract and selling to them. And that's been working very well for the last several years. So if you're doing it virtually, does that just mean you have networks in those areas? Like if you find a deal, you send it to someone that's going to fix and flip it? Yes, that's exactly it. Um, I have huge, we call them buyers lists. I have a huge buyer base in the territories I'm in. So do you have like any employees in those areas uh, as well? Actually, all my employees are virtual. So I oh, have, awesome. yeah, so some are here um, local to me. Everybody works from home though. Um, and some are, I use virtual assistants. I've got some amazing virtual assistants on my team that are Philippine based. Um, and then I do have the local boots on ground. Um, they, I have um, some people that are local that, you know, when we do get a house under contract, they can kind of fulfill the next steps where you would need someone locally to be. Yeah. And in the beginning of all this, uh, like you were saying, the, the first year you felt pretty good. And then the second year is when you kind of realized how hard it was. Mm-hmm. Was there any specific challenges you face outside of uh, the contractors? I know you said you got taken advantage of a little bit. Honestly, market conditions and the market changing things that are really outside of my control. So, you know, at that time, throughout actually the entire, my entire career, um, house flipping and wholesaling became incredibly popular. So I am facing a lot of market saturation. So I would go in a market and at first it might be easy. And then that market becomes saturated because, you know, it becomes popular. Like the example was Southern California. So at first Southern California was easy because we were in a recession and there was so much, you know, motivation and and real estate was not the hot thing to be in because we were all, you know, kind of getting out of that recession mindset. So at that time, you know, it was easy in California and then the market started heating up and the competition came, you know, everybody came out of the woodwork saying, I want to be a house flipper, you know, and uh, the same thing happened in the next market. I went to uh, Nashville, Tennessee and Nashville was going through a major development boom at the time. So I got in when it was still relatively not that competitive and not that saturated, but shortly after the cat, you know, was out of the bag and people started flooding to Nashville from everywhere, you know, to invest in it. Um, So at that point, I learned to pick markets that are a little bit more stable and balanced. There's not like a major upswing. They're not like in the news for, you know, some sort of, um, you know, unusual growth pattern. They're just stable. Those are the markets I like to focus on now. And does that, do you kind of have a market or two that you focus on at one time and then that eventually shifts around or how does that work with the the markets that you pick? I do try to stay in the same market as long as I possibly can. The only reason I maybe make shifts, like if I leave one is because we're just saying that it's just not profitable anymore. Like, you know, California gave, you know, you gave that example of like $10,000 to get one deal. Like if a market starts looking like that, then yeah, we, it's time to go. Um, you know, so I do try not to shift. 
Um, the longer you're in a market, honestly, the more profitable you usually can be because you've really figured it out. You know, you figure it out better. You have, um, you know, more of an established buyer base there. Um, you have a reputation with sellers. You have a good reputation, you know, in the business. You learn the pricing. I mean, like anything, you just, every market is like learning a whole new business when you go into one. So it doesn't, you don't want to bounce around really. Right. Yeah. That's why I asked. I just feel like every time you switch, you probably have to do a ton of studying and research about that specific market. Yes, it is. It's so it's not worth it to switch and bounce around if you can avoid it. And with all this, uh, with wholesaling specifically, did there come a moment where you were like, okay, I'm going to be successful now. Like you could actually feel it happening and the momentum going. I mean, I feel like you have, I think like any entrepreneur, you're going to have moments like that, but then you're going to also have moments where you're like, I suck. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, even to this day, I mean, I have moments where I'm like, I'm killing it. And then I have moments where I'm like, I am failing at everything and I need to go get a job. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I, uh, I could definitely relate to, <laughs> to what you're saying there. Yeah. And, and um, when I heard, or excuse me, when I had Greg Hellback on my show, uh, something I asked him, I also wanted to ask you, uh, is there any deal that went really bad? And can you kind of take us through that? Okay. Yes. I mean, anytime I, the first thing that comes up is the time I got sued. So yeah, I had a deal that went really bad. Um, I bought a property and I'm trying to like, I'm going to maybe give you the shorter version of this story. Essentially, this property had some title issues before I came into the picture. I bought the property and the property had the owner in it that foreclosed on her home and she wasn't willing to move, of course. And she also wasn't really willing to come to terms with the fact that she foreclosed on her house and that the house isn't even hers anymore. And I thought, okay, no, we can handle this. You know, it's a simple eviction, no big deal. This is very common in our business to buy homes like this. So I bought it, I serve her notice and she tells me, uh, no, something's gone wrong. There's no way you're the owner of my home. You've been defrauded and so have I, and your money's gone and my house is gone. And really we need to go after the person that sold you the home. And she just feeds me this major conspiracy story. <laughs> so I, at first I was very new. I actually didn't have that much experience. This was my second year in the business. Only like my second year. Okay. This is what I mean. Year two, I got it handed to me. So I was very confused by what she was telling me. I did actually believe her because I was very naive. And I got a hold of the company that sold me the home, who they were the ones that foreclosed on her. It was a small note holder. It wasn't a bank, but it was, a, it was an investment company. And they sold me the home and they said, you know, nope, she's, she's lying to you, Lauren, get used to this. This is the, this is that side of the business. You get these people that do this. So anyway, I said, okay, never mind. I'm just not going to deal with her on the phone anymore. And I, um, proceeded to evict her. Well, as I proceeded to evict her one day, I get a knock on my door and I got served with the lawsuit that was like 150 pages long. And it, it had my name all over it. It had 
that we had this conversation on the phone with a bunch of lies. You know, she just accused me of a lot of things. Um, there was horrible things written about me and my company. And she had this conspiracy theory of how we conspired to steal her home from her. And it, it, what's crazy is a lawyer actually typed this stuff. Like a lawyer actually put the made causes of action that fit this, this conspiracy theory. It was absolutely ridiculous. Um, but in any event, um, it was the most stressful thing still to this date that I think I could ever imagine. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever been put under that much stress, like physically when I got that lawsuit, I like lost five pounds in like a day. <laughs> it was like, I had like a gray hair pop up, like in my head, like it was so stressful. I, I mean, when you get sued for, especially for your first time, you immediately think you did something wrong. It, you just assume you did. You're like, what I do, you know, you immediately think you're guilty and you're just, it was like, I, I was re replaying everything in my head and I'm like, I, but I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong, but why does it feel like I did? Because someone's writing these things that you've done something wrong. And, you know, fast forward, I remember going through that period. So I had to hold on to that house. That house was locked up. I couldn't sell it. So I had to figure out how to, you know, pay the expenses of that home. So I had to pay all the holding costs. This, this took 18 months. So I was looking at going, okay, how am I going to pay all this? Like I have holding costs. I can't sell it. I'm just stuck with this house. It kept, we eventually actually got her out of the home. We evicted her successfully. Um, but we had, it was getting broken into all the time. Um, it was very stressful. So I had to, in my head, I, just said, well, you're going to have to just make a lot of money this year to pay for this. Like that was the, it was crazy how, like when there's a fire underneath you, you go. And that year I did the most deals like I'd ever done. Like I never thought I would hit numbers like that. Like it was just cause I was so scared that I was going to owe a lot of money, you know, cause of this house. So I freaked out. I was like, okay, that's it. Time to go. And I like, I worked so hard. I went from like closing maybe two or three deals a year to, I think I closed 15. Oh my gosh. So I was like, I mean, I went really hard into working um, and making sure that I was going to have enough money to pay for anything. Now, fast forward, um, I ended up winning. Um, we were fine. Uh, it, it ended up uh, like gone. Lawsuit was gone. I got the house. I fixed it up. I sold it, made $90,000 profit after all the expenses. Good. So it ended up being totally fine. <laughs> Is that just inevitable? Like if you're in real estate investing full-time, are you going to get sued? Cause I feel like I've heard this a couple times. Yeah. If you do enough deals, you probably will. Sorry to scare you guys. Did anything come of her blatantly lying or was it just like the end all of it. story? All of it was she lied about the whole thing. She lied and she found an attorney. I think she had some sort of personal relationship with the attorney. So he just did it as a favor. He wasn't being paid buyer and he just wrote up a lawsuit and it was very frivolous, but there's nothing I could do about it. The only way to get through a lawsuit is to get through it. That's it. You have to fight it. It's just a game. It's just a game. It's just paperwork. At the end of the day, I now know so much about le like the legal system and how lawsuits work. And 
now I am going into my next lawsuit if I ever get one, you know, which gosh, business owners, you do. Um, I know that, you know, I'm going to be a lot calmer about it because I realize it's not personal. She was just someone who was desperate to undo the mistakes she made in her life. And she had a lawyer accessible to her and she was just doing what she needed to do to save her life. Like to her, her house was her life. So I, I forgive her for it. Um, I, I understand why she did it. Um, I'm okay and at peace with the whole situation, but it was one of the most pivotal moments of my life that calloused my skin and made me like just so much harder um, as a business person. So I have no regrets. I'm so glad that happened to me. And did she have any repercussions for all of the lying or did it just end after the lawsuit? No, it just ends. That's how it works. That's how lawsuits work. There's no, re there's no like you lied. So now you're going to jail. <laughs> it's not like that. It's just, okay, well that was fun. You lost. All right. You know, it, but it took 18 months to do that. And she was in there the whole time for those 18 months, just living there. No, we got her out. So I was able to evict her. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know if that was during that process or a little bit yeah. after. Okay. I was able to evict her and then the house was vacant. So then the house became right. vacant and it was getting broken into all the time. So then we moved somebody in. Now, then I was, I was now hindsight. I wish I would have made the house livable and then somebody could just rent it for a profit. But the problem was I didn't know if she'd give up on the lawsuit. So if she, if I move someone in and then she gives up and then I have to kick them out and it, you know, right. so what I ended up doing, my contractor, um, I asked him, I said, do you know anyone that just wants to live somewhere for free? And, you know, they can just hang out here. They don't need to pay me rent, kind of fix up the home just enough to like make it livable. And, you know, as soon as I get this thing out of this lawsuit, they have to move out. And it was the project manager that works for him. He moved his family in and, you know, helped them out a lot. And then my contractor to help me out when we remodeled the home, I think he gave me like a $20,000 discount. Nice. Yeah. He hooked me up. So it was like, it was a wash. It was like, I would have made rental income. So. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to transition a little bit into uh, your schedule. Cause I remember hearing you say something interesting um, and tell me if I'm wrong with uh, what I'm about to quote. You said something like, I only check emails on this certain day of the week and I don't work on Friday. And so I was really interested, uh, one, if that was correct, or if I'm making that up in my head. And then two, how did you get to a point where you're so productive and focused that you didn't have to work on Fridays and you can, you know, only check emails a certain time of the week? You know, it's, it's all about boundaries. Um, I decided that Friday is my favorite day of the week and I like Friday to be fun Friday and I, <laughs> I don't want to work on Fridays. So if I do work on Fridays, I want it to be creative. So I don't want to be stuck in meetings. Um, I want it to be work like internal work. Maybe I'm reading, maybe I'm learning a new skill, just something that like I enjoy doing um, creative work, like maybe just like taking time to think about how to improve something in my business um, or I'm not working at all and I'm doing something fun with the kids. Um, and yes, I email management was something that about a year ago I said, okay, we got to figure something out because this email, I could spend a whole day in my inbox because the it, it, inbox is basically just people soliciting your time, just constantly, just taking your time away from you. And a lot of people just live out of their inbox. Like their to-do list is their email inbox. Well, when you get to a certain level, you know, I own two companies right now in two different industries. Um, 
they, you know, both take a lot out of me and all these employees, they all have fires that need to be put out. And so they email me about them. Um, I started, you know, creating sort of a hierarchy between people, you know, like to solicit my time or take my time away from me. So, you know, certain employees have to report to other employees that are above them, like their manager. And then I recently hired a um, manager above everybody who goes cross company with me. So essentially she is my barrier. Nobody is going straight to me anymore. Everybody has to go to her first. And if she can't answer it, she comes to me. Um, we've also created meeting time. So don't email me. Let's just talk about that in our business development meeting on Tuesdays. So that's been very um, effective is, hey guys, how about stop emailing me every time you think about something? Instead, if it's still on your mind and you haven't solved it with your direct manager, when we have a meeting, that is the time to bring this up. So I have a, every two weeks I meet with my accountant. Um, she does all my accounting. So any type of accounting question we write, I write a little list. If it's something I want to go through, I put it in the meeting invite. So I know, like talk to, you know, Lindsay about X, Y, Z. Um, and she does the same. Um, and we talk about it every two weeks. So we're like, okay, let's, you know, this is when we're going to hash out our, all our things instead of, Hey, emailing back and forth. She only emails me if it's something I really need to do between if we don't have a meeting. Right. And the same thing goes with everybody in the company. We have regular once a week meeting. You can reach me then. Um, so that's cut out on the need for me to check my email all the time. If now, yes, do things get missed because I only check my email about once or twice a week. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so many times where I'm like, I'm so sorry. I just saw this, but you know what, if it's that important, they'd have my cell phone number and they would text me. It, so if you're at a level with me where you don't have my cell phone number, no offense, but you're not that important. <laughs> like, I know that sounds bad, but it's like, true. think about it for your own life. You guys, if they don't have your cell phone number, like there, then their issue is low level for you. And it can wait a week. And since you transitioned to doing that, how, how has it been uh, the last year? I think you said. Yes. Oh, I mean, much better. I'm way more effective in my day and I actually get projects done. So now my day is run off of a Trello board. I don't run off of my email anymore. I'm looking at Trello and I'm going, what are my mission criticals right now? Mission criticals are like, I take three things at a time that I'm like, these are the things I need to get done. And I'm not moving on until these three things are done. So I just work on projects and my other time is spent doing things that actually make me money like this, like being on podcasts, filming my YouTube videos, stuff that I can't outsource. Um, so yeah, that's how I run, you know, my, my day. It's not perfect. I'm still working on lifestyle design in this way. There's there's always some tweaks that, you know, I, I think we can all make and I'm still working on it, but it's much better than it was two years ago. And uh, you're doing a lot of coaching too, correct? Mm -hmm. So what does it look like if someone hires you as a coach? Yeah. So I do have a coaching um, platform and we, we coach virtual wholesaling. Um, I coach with Wholesaling Inc. They're a very well-known education company and they have an amazing podcast and I coach the virtual wholesaling coaching programs. And so that's my specialty. Um, it comes with an online e-course um, where I have uh, about 11 modules breaking down your entire virtual wholesaling blueprint. 
And it also comes with a six months coaching program because just having a course is not enough. There's always going to be these extra questions that students have because every market is different and has different nuances and you need that coach to help you through. So the six month coaching is really um, very, very crucial. And um, so I do, I do the six months with students um, and then they can also do ongoing coaching if they want to stick with us. Um, the coaching, uh, comes with a once a week coaching call. It's a group coaching call. And then we have a forum where you can post questions every day. Awesome. And then, so you have your businesses, your coaching, is there any other projects that you're working on or something in the future that you're working on that you can tell us about? Yes. I actually have two software companies launching soon. So that's totally new space for me. I've never been in the software space, um, but there, it started at first with a passion project. Um, being on the coaching side, I noticed that students had a need for a CRM that not only just managed their leads, but taught them how to manage their sales funnel better, um, to give them, you know, actual sales funnel management training, something that nobody really has unless you've had some sort of sales background that included some professional training. Um, so we created a CRM that does built in teach you how to manage your sales funnel. Um, so very, very excited. That's going to be launching soon. We're in beta mode right now. So we're testing it and making sure there's no bugs. Um, but I hope to be launching it in the next month or two. Um, and oh, then, wow. Right yeah. around the corner. Yeah. Right around the corner. Yeah. So that's, we've worked on the CRM for a year. We wanted to make it perfect. I wanted it to fit my students' needs. So um, it's me and a partner and we thought about our own employees. So we, you know, we both have teams and we manage sales professionals and we, we wanted to make it easier for us to manage our sales professionals and see what they're doing. Um, but then also I thought about my students and what does my student need? Like, what does a CRM need to have? And what does it not need to have? Like a lot of CRMs come with things that people don't even use and you're getting charged for them. Like that's why your CRM costs $200 a month. So, you know, we were really just trying to make this perfect package for anybody that is in our business. It's really, it's very much geared to real estate investors. Um, but I, I do also um, want to make it where realtors as well could use the platform. So our first launch will be more geared towards um, the real estate investor community, but we are hoping to expand and uh, get some realtors on board as well. So that's, yeah, that's one software. And then we do have another software. Um, I noticed my students needed a simple way to build a website. Um, a website that's geared for um, like a seller lead website, where if your sellers are interested um, in, you know, reaching you, they can go on the site, type in their address and they'll get an offer from you. Um, so we, we built something out like that. And there were um, there, the reason the need really came was um, there, I was using a, a platform and the platform had a lot of holes. There were a lot of things that weren't customizable that needed to be um, this. I, I, and I couldn't get, I couldn't get it fixed. The only way I uh, could do this and have the website exactly how I needed it to be for my wholesaling business and other people's wholesaling business was to hire a developer. So I, I called like a website developer and I got a quote from him and it was $10,000. I was like, what? 
like $10,000, like to start from scratch. I know, like, I guess I'm just going to keep with my other platform, but the problem is the platform didn't have these things I needed it to do. So I approached that developer. I said, listen, I've got a bunch of students. I've had almost, I have over 250 students now. My students need this. What if we go into business together and you develop something that is tailor-made for exactly what my students need? And it's going to be, you know, less expensive than, you know, having to start from scratch at 10 grand. (laughs) So we did just that. And that should be launching as well in the next couple months. And if someone wanted to check those out in a couple months, where would they go to, to find those? Ooh, okay. Well, the CRM is going to be at dealprocrm.com. Um, and then the next one, we, I don't know if we have our URL finalized yet, um, but the name is Deal Site Now. Um, so it might be dealsitenow.com, but I, I need to double check on that. Awesome. And uh, so this is uh, going to be the last part of the show. And I want to give you the floor again for just a few minutes. And so I kind of wanted to go back a little bit to the people that say, they are too busy to be able to start a side hustle or just completely go into entrepreneurship. So what, what can you tell those people that are kind of hesitant in doing that? You know, this is what I can tell you guys, get out a calculator and I want you to put 24 hours in your day into your calculator. So put 24. All right. And then you maybe sleep what eight hours. Okay. So minus eight and let's say maybe 10 hours of working and commuting in your lunch break. Okay. So you still got six more hours. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. Did you know that I heard somewhere that like corporations, like, I don't know, there was some poll and employees that work full time at a corporation, like they actually only work like three hours out of their eight hour day that they're sitting at the office. I just saw that a few weeks ago. I read that somewhere too. Yeah. So like, think about that. Like, so I have a big thing about three hours. I really think if you take three hours and you do the three top money-making activities, like if you could do no more then only these three things every day, what were the three things you could do to make money at least immediately, right? So for a real estate investor, it's like talking to seller leads, making offers to the sellers and then following up with the sellers until they sign your contract, right? If you did that for three hours a day, so you still have three more hours, by the way, because I gave you six. So if you did that for three hours a day, you absolutely will make money in your side hustle. I have students that did just that and are making six figures a year. So I know that you can do it. Um, you've got six hours and I just told you, you just have, I have to borrow three of them to get your side hustle going. And the no excuses mentality too, right? Right. Absolutely. There's I, honestly, I, a lot of people are just lazy. Jacob, it, they're just call them out, call them out. I love they're this. just lazy. They don't want to do it. Like they, they don't want to do it. You know, um, I listen after being with 250 people, uh, 250 students, I've got different students with different mindsets and I more think of it like brain chemistry. I, I have a daughter, she's got severe ADHD. And I know that her brain chemistry would be like one of my students that 
might be very hard to get them to do the three hours of three money-making activities. When you have ADHD, your brain, it's, it's like you've got a hundred open tabs up at once and it's very hard for them to prioritize like what's important and so they keep getting distracted so it makes it difficult to just focus on you know three things like i get that um so you really need to if you are one of those people if you can if you're listening to what i'm saying you're like yep that's me then you need to get like be self-aware about that and fix that underlying issue before you even try this, because you're just going to get frustrated. Um, you know, it's okay to, you know, say, yeah, you know what? I do struggle with focus or, you know, maybe I do have ADHD and like, you know, there's doctors, there's, there's things you can do to help that. Um, so, you know, I, I really, I'm not saying, oh, you're lazy. Like you were, I don't think people have agency in being lazy. I don't think they're choosing to be that way. I think they have brain chemistry that's going against them and it's making it hard for them to, to focus and to do the things that they need to do. And that's coming from a mother who, who raised that child that I'm seeing, she's really struggling with that. So, um, so my recommendation is like, Hey, let's put the side hustle on pause right now. Let's figure out our brain chemistry first and how can we get, um, ourselves to focus better. Awesome. And uh, where can uh, people connect with you or if they want to hire you as a coach or join one of your programs, where would they do that? Yeah. So you can uh, definitely check me out on Instagram. Um, my handle is this mom flips. I also have a YouTube channel with a bunch of videos on the topic of wholesaling. Um, if you just look up Lauren Hardy, um, you'll find my YouTube channel. Um, I have a website, um, laurenhardyco.com. Um, within there, you can find a link to the coaching program. You can find some freebies. I've got a free mini coaching, uh, a little mini course, um, a free script, a free flip calculator. So check out laurenhardyco.com. Awesome. I'll make sure to link all those in the show description for all the listeners today. And uh, thank you everyone for listening to the Mission Driven Made podcast. If you found value in this today, subscribe to the show and then take just a few seconds and leave a five-star review for us. And Lauren, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show and bringing all the value you did today. It's greatly appreciated. And until next time, everyone stay mission driven.